1: Jennifer Wallace is an award-winning journalist and author of the new book, Never Enough, When Achievement Pressure Becomes Toxic and What We Can Do About It. She's a frequent contributor to the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post. And she speaks honestly, openly about how she both has spent years researching this topic as well as living it in her own family, in her own community. This is a really important conversation for us all to be having about how we help our kids feel seen, how we help them unburden themselves from the really toxic messaging that they're getting about how they need to be all things to all people at all times. And we have no doubt that you will take some helpful information and guidance away from this conversation. It is very exciting to welcome our friend and just an incredible journalist, writer, researcher, Jenny Wallace to the Puberty Podcast today. Hi, Jenny. I am so excited to be here. Thank you guys so much. Jenny, your work has covered family life, American society, American culture, education, parenting. I mean, you you really have become an expert over the last several years after putting your career on hold to be the perfect mother. And we'll get to that in a second. And anyone who knows the podcast or any of us, perfect mother is in the biggest pair of quotation marks ever in the history of the world, because there is no such thing as a perfect parent. And then you wrote an article about four years ago based on a new study. And that, sent you on this journey, writing the book, Never Enough. Can you tell us about what inspired the article and then tell us about this four-year journey? Oh, that's a great question. So it was 2019, like you said, and my
3: son, so just to like set the scene, my oldest was in eighth grade about to enter high school. I was realizing that I had four more years left of him living full-time at home and where should I put my parental energy if I want to instill everything I feel like I need to in these last four years? So that's one thing. Another thing that was happening was the Varsity Blue scandal. And that's when, you know, parents on both coasts were wrapped up in racketeering and conspiracy and fraud to get their kids into brand name colleges and universities like USC. And I was thinking to myself, how did we get here? Now, how did we get to a point where parents were willing to go to jail to get their kids into a highly selective college? And I wasn't buying the narrative that it was just, they wanted the bumper sticker. I just wasn't buying it. I knew there was something deeper at play here. So anyway, so that was happening. And then the last thing that really sort of got the book moving was in 2019, I wrote this article for the Washington Post about how students who attend what researchers call high achieving schools, those are competitive public and private schools around the country where most of the kids go on to four-year colleges, where the standardized test scores are pretty high, where they offer AP and advanced courses those students were now officially an at-risk group according to two national policy reports at risk for two to six times more likely to suffer from clinical levels of anxiety depression substance abuse disorder than the average american teen and these were my kids and their friends that they, you know that the researchers were finding and so all of these things sort of came together And I said, I want to devote the next several years to digging deep into this achievement culture that we all find ourselves in today and, and why our children's childhoods are so different than ours was.
2: So you're a journalist and you set out to dig in, in a couple of different ways. Will you describe how you spent those four years, who you talked to and how you gathered your information?
3: Awesome. So I began, I want, so I'm raising my kids in New York city and I wanted to make sure that the pressure I was seeing in my own home and in my friends, that it wasn't just a city thing or a coastal thing. So with the help of a researcher at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, I conducted a first of its kind parenting survey. And the researcher said to me, okay, in order to really be able to see patterns, we need to have at least a sample size of a thousand. But within a few days, over sixty five hundred parents from around the country had filled out this survey, and I heard from parents in Alaska, Washington State, Maine, Jackson, Wyoming, Texas. Did you, how did we find the survey? How did right. I, you know? I mean, so you're very what,
2: popular, Denny.
3: It was. Uh, it was with the help of good friends. Um, no, but it was it was done in what researchers call a snowball effect. So I posted it on grown and flown a parenting website then it just started taking off i did it in my social networks i asked friends to share it and then it just kind of snowballed
2: which got you out of your echo chamber and i just want to pause and make a note of that because as a journalist someone who's looking to represent and you you outline very clearly whose voices you do and don't represent at the start of the book but you know there are ways to reach beyond the 10 people who pop up on your Instagram feed or the 100 friends that are listed in Facebook. And this is one of them, right? To ask for people to survey people beyond the reach. Okay, keep going.
3: That's exactly right. So the parents I spoke to, it was a very diverse group of people. But as I point out in the book, the survey was particularly targeted at uh, parents who can choose where they want to send their kids to. So parents who can choose where they want to live and the kind of school they send their children to. So it really focused on the top 25% of household incomes, which is roughly about 130,000 a year, depending on where you live, combined family income. And at the end of the survey, I asked parents if they would be willing to be interviewed, either anonymously or with their name, to please write me and hundreds of parents reached out. And that set me on a journey both to go in person. I wanted to embed in these families' lives. I just, I got such an education. And I ultimately went in search of the kids who were thriving despite the pressures in their environment. I wanted to know what, if anything, these healthy achievers had in common. What was home life like for them? What was school like? What did their parents focus on? And I found out a lot. I found out sort of what I call the secrets of the healthy strivers and it was pretty consistent.
1: So, we're going to get to the good news towards the end. <laughs> but yeah. I wanna, fear not, dear listener, there will be some some helpful guidance at the end and along the way. But I want to talk a little bit more about the problem. And, you know, we've had incredible experts on this podcast, people like Lisa Damore, people like Tina Bryson, who are at the heart of discussing the mental health crisis that kids are facing, not just this high achieving at risk group, but kids of every class of every geography of really almost any age from, you know, tweenhood to adult young adulthood. How is it, Jenny? that we are facing this reality. Like, what are the drivers, right? You you said earlier, you didn't buy the Varsity Blues. Like, it's just about the bumper sticker stuff. So like, what are the drivers that have led us to this point where we look around and we think, how is this the world we are inhabiting? How is it that our kids don't have time to sleep? How is it that our families don't have time to sit on the couch for a couple of hours, on a Sunday afternoon and have nowhere to go? How is it that our our extended families don't see each other because people's lives are too busy and scheduled? Like, How did we get here? And that will help us start to think about how we make some change. Yes. So
3: I wanted to dig into why my childhood was so different from my own kids' childhoods. And so I spoke with historians. I spoke with Anthropologists, I spoke with economists, and I reveal a a bit about all of these sort of trends in the book. But the one that really resonated the most with me was the macroeconomic forces that have changed from the 1970s and 80s when I was growing up. So in the 70s, life was generally more affordable. You could afford to buy a house, groceries were more affordable, healthcare was more affordable, higher education was more affordable parents had a belief that their kids could fail, sort of have this normal zigzag of life and most likely be able to replicate their childhoods, that they would be able to bounce back from any setbacks. Over the past several decades, we have seen a huge increase in inequality, this steep divide between the haves and the have-nots, the crush of the middle class, globalization, hyper-competition, and we are seeing a first generation that will likely not do as well, has fewer assets, less money, higher debt than their parents did. And parents, whether or not we are aware of this, we are becoming social conduits in passing those fears onto our kids in the way we are parenting. And so this is not a book that blames parents. This is a book that says to parents, look at what you are shouldering. You are raising your kids In a world where we're facing climate change, huge issues, where everything is more expensive from food to healthcare to housing. We don't know what the jobs are going to be like in the future for our kids. You know, many of these jobs are currently unknown. And you have very few and fewer every year safety nets. So when we think about why we are parenting so much more intensely, than even our own parents did, is because we are living in a society right now that has few, if any, safety nets for our kids and for ourselves. And so parents are tasked with, you know, in the words of researchers, knitting these individualized safety nets for each of our own children. I mean, that's the work of intensive parenting, and that's exhausting and it's not sustainable.
2: And you talk about this book surveying a narrow slice of the pie. But that sentence, I think, applies to everyone, regardless of what zip code they live in, regardless of their income. I've never met a parent who doesn't feel what you've articulated. It's just the downward pressures look different.
1: So, Jenny, if it's not just, and I will admit, I am raising my children in the same culture that I grew up in, right? Privileged, high-achieving, that very swath of people you interviewed. And yet we know on a national level, kids of all backgrounds, of all geographies, of all family structures and parenting are also suffering from higher rates of anxiety and depression. And so while the book is kind of about this achievement pressure, everyone in this country, I mean, I hate to say it, but like everyone is struggling.
2: This and is not part of the good news. This is you not part promising. of the good
1: news, but I <laughs> swear I am getting to the good news. And the advice you give and the guidance you give applies to anyone, anywhere who's involved in the life of a kid. But first, before we get there, I want you to talk about how you yourself have been part of the problem, just as Kara and I will admit ourselves to participating in this culture, even when we say, I just want my kid to be happy. I just want my kid to find meaning in their lives. And then we go off on these pathways that are exactly part of the problem. So will you tell, I'm actually sorry that William laughed because, so Jenny's son was helping us with the Wi Fi.
2: There was an incredible secondary plot line happening during the recording <laughs> of this interview. Vanessa, will you describe it, please?
1: Yeah, so we we were dealing with a Wi-Fi issue, and Jenny's eldest son, who features beautifully in the book, came to patiently help her sort out the Wi-Fi. If there was ever a more perfect scenario for a recording of the puberty podcast, I cannot think of one, except things I cannot mention On air. So, you have a story about William and his own passions and the way you totally just like swallowed whole the problem that we are facing with kids in this country. Tell us the story about William and architecture.
3: Yes. So, for many years before my kids became high schoolers, like in middle school and and elementary school, every August when it was time to draw up the school schedule, I would have this like parental panic. What should I send them up for? I I don't know yet. You know, do they have too much in their schedule? Do they not? Is this the right activity? Is this the wrong activity for them? And then I remember what the story that you're referencing in the book is that around sixth grade, it seemed like everyone I knew, all the parents I knew figured out what made their children uniquely tick. And yet I still hadn't figured out what made William tick. And so I was sitting in my office and I was thinking, well, you know, he's really interested in architecture. He's always pointing out facades. He's really interested in like industrial design. Those, you know, we'd go to the supermarket and he'd, he'd really fixate on the the contraption that separates the plastic bag. And I was like, isn't that the seed of passion? And like, what is my job as a parent? If it is not to foster that passion. And so one afternoon I called, I Googled up intro to architecture and design classes. And I called about a dozen places and nobody had architecture and design classes for sixth graders until one one, quote school did bite. It was the kind of place that I imagined like on top of the deli. And they were like, yes, you can enroll in our school as long as you will sit next to your son and and take the class along with him. Because this is actually a class that is aimed at older high school students. And I was like, great. So William walks in the door after school that day and I said, I have the best news. We're gonna sign you up for an architecture and design class. And he said to me, mom, I love architecture. Please don't ruin it for me. My children, and I'm sure you agree, are my greatest teachers.
1: And he called it out right there and then. And I just want to go back to something you said at the beginning, Jenny. If you are raising a sixth grader or a seventh grader or an eighth grader or a twelfth grader and they don't know what their passion is and they don't have their story and they don't have their niche and it's fine. It is better than fine. fine. It's appropriate. Jenny, in the midst of the story, would have gone back and said, like, don't expect your sixth grader to know who the hell they want to be. Let them just be curious and interested and explore. But this whole system is making us feel like our kids are supposed to, like, be who they're going to be in 30 years at ten.
2: Yes, but it's entirely at odds with another thing that parents often say, because they know it's true, which is half of all the jobs that will exist when our kids are in the workforce do not exist right now. So we are asking 10-year-olds to know their passion and their path, but we are also acknowledging that we have no idea where the path goes. So we are all guilty of this crime, all of us on this Zoom, dear listener, maybe you are not, but whether we do it outwardly or just internally, right? Which takes me to a version of the same question, because you said your children are your biggest teachers. I believe that the three of us in this conversation would all agree wholeheartedly. And I think anyone who has children in their lives would agree wholeheartedly. And yet you have had a very special trajectory through your work, similar to mine in the field of pediatrics, similar to Vanessa's. We are all talking to kids and families all the time. So can you just take a second to talk about, is there a lesson? Is there a something that someone has said somewhere along the way that is in the very front of your brain when you make parenting decisions because that's the gift of not just having your kids as your guides, but other people's kids as their guides. I'd love to know like one pearl that pops into your mind that someone else taught you.
3: Yes. So if we want to talk about from the child perspective, yeah. I conducted another survey with a researcher at Baylor where I surveyed 18 to 30 year olds and I asked them, what did they wish they could tell their parents about the pressure they felt in high school? And the responses, they were open-ended responses, and they were very difficult to read. They were, I felt like my worth was tied to my grades. I wish my parents knew that the pressure on me to achieve and do well was the catalyst for my anxiety and depression. That comparing me to my siblings or to another friend made those relationships less strong and sturdy. But if I think about the advice I've gotten from adults in this realm that I keep in my head all the time is something Rick Wiseford at Making Caring Common told me, which was the self becomes stronger, less by being praised than by being known. Mm -hmm. And so what I have come to realize in my parenting is that my job as a parent is to what i call get a phd in my kids find out by talking to them listening following them what it is that makes them tick what makes their you know brains bubble up what you see in their eyes and to know them for things that have nothing to do with achievement and that at every turn in our home it is to acknowledge who our children are at their core, aside from their achievements, and to recognize it and to point it out.
2: Vanessa, do you ever do that thing when you're just standing in your closet, staring at your clothes, trying to figure out what to wear, when you know five minutes later, you're going to be sweating right through it?
1: Yeah, I mean, car, I do it all summer long, and I even see my kids do it, too. They may not have fully mature brains, but they do know that if it's already hot and humid at breakfast, it's not getting much better through the rest of the day. Do you know what else I notice? What? They grab their Oom shorts.
2: Yeah, they do. It's so funny because we launched the brand Oomla to create products that would make going through puberty more comfortable. But they're great for any hot and sweaty time, not just the sweatiness of puberty bras that feel great against the body and help manage developing boobs, shorts that are loose and airy like the opposite of underwear, and socks that don't smell even on the sweatiest days.
1: So when temps run high, go to myoomla.com and use the code PUBERTYPODCAST at checkout for 15% off your order. That's myoomla, M-Y-O-O-M-L-A.com and use the code PUBERTYPODCAST.
2: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is Factor's ready-to-eat meals. They have been a godsend.
1: We throw our Factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, Beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals
2: in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. And you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle.
1: So to order... Go to com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator.
2: It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause.
1: We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at com slash puberty. Your body and brain and family and business
2: partner will thank you. So I just think it's important to underline with a highlighter the notion that Sometimes, Just like kids can often hear things better from someone else than from us, so too, sometimes we are better at hearing things from someone else than from our own kids. When my kids are like, stop, mom, don't tell me to write the thank you note again, I can't hear it. But sometimes it takes a third party adult to come in and go, well, there's a better way to do that. And I think one thing that you've been able to do in your career Is garner a lot of advice that you pass along to other people. But it sounds like in the way you write Never Enough, you are very vulnerable and sharing your own personal experiences. You take that advice to heart. So for people who are listening to get a pearl of wisdom, I think one just dropped, which is glean it from other people. And it can be experts, it can also be an expert in your own world, it can be a next door neighbor or a family member or a friend from childhood who can pass something incredible along. One little pearl that I'll share my very first year of being in practice. I had a parent who had bought a house that had video cameras all over it, but they were hidden and the kids didn't know. And then the mom saw something on video that she needed to confront the kid about. And the kid didn't know they were being videoed. And she came in, she said, what do I do? What do I do with this information? And I said, I honestly don't know. And she said, I know what to do. I know that from now on as a parent, I will never collect data on my kids without my kids knowing I'm collecting the data because you can't do anything with it. And that was way before I had kids. And that's a little pearl that I have used through my entire parenting journey. So you get those constantly given what you do. I know Vanessa gets them you know times 4 because she has four kids and <laughs> and four sources of input.
1: So I want to think about when the pressure's not coming from us or we're sort of doing everything we can to take pressure off. We're not asking when they walk through the door how the test went. We're not asking when they walk through the door what part they got or if they made the team, right? We're we're rejiggering our focus. And our questions and our interests to get at them as human beings. But what if, Jenny, they are driving, right? They by osmosis, they've absorbed this pressure to achieve. They're taking, you talk about kids who are taking every single AP class and doubling up and travel soccer and the play and the band. And it's like they don't even sleep. What is our role in that situation? I think about like how do we help them unburden themselves? Because at a certain point, it's harder and harder to tell our kids what to do when they're not doing necessarily, quote unquote, dangerous stuff. But in some ways it is dangerous. I totally agree with you. It actually,
3: I would, I would argue it is dangerous stuff because what you're describing, you know, we're told as parents, don't let your kids use drugs or alcohol. And we all know this, but what is at the root? Of that substance abuse. It is when they are so overwhelmed, that work hard, play hard mindset. So many kids I met were so overwhelmed by their schedules that the only way they could shut down on the weekends was to drink to black out. That was a pattern I saw all over the country. And so I spoke to parents about how they confronted this grind culture and what they did in their own homes. And the parents of these healthy achievers that I met put up really firm bumpers. They were careful with their kids about, including juniors and seniors in high school, Mm -hmm. about not signing off on schedules that were insane, on insisting on eight to 10 hours of sleep a night, on telling them that you can't be on every club, all the sports, taking all the classes, you know, often... As parents, we think it is our job to encourage this, to support them, to to drive them places. But in some cases, particularly in these high achieving environments, it's also our job sometimes to pull them back and to say, you're taking on too much. And in our home, we value a balanced life. And here's what that looks like. That looks like being ambitious. For more than just straight A's, Mm -hmm. it means being an ambitious friend, having time for those sources of support that you really need, having family time, having downtime, being able to sleep, that we as a family are ambitious for more than just one metric of success.
2: Are you ever surprised by how honest and vulnerable people are with you, especially the kids, to glean this information that you're able to then kind of knit together? It was extraordinary. It
3: was, and I think it was also because I'm one of these parents and I went there and I was, you know, asking the questions. I think they trusted me because they knew that I wasn't there to judge. I was there to understand. And I was amazed at how these young kids could articulate the pressures. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it was actually where I got the best information on the healthy achievers was from the peers. They all knew who had a good balanced life, who had figured out the system, who was overworking, who was abusing the drugs. They were very smart. And I was amazed at the honesty and so grateful that they were giving me information, not just for my own life as a parent, but that I could share with everybody else. I mean, they really were honest about their missteps so that we could avoid them.
1: So, if we take away the idea of traditional achievement as giving someone their worth, right? Not where they go to college or not how many APs or not their test scores. And we want to replace that with another set of values, another set of achievement or meaning. Where did you get to with that, Jenny? Because you talk about a, a concept in the book that is so beautiful. And I, I just, I found it incredibly meaningful. And I love, This is the good news part, everyone. So, you know, if you're fast forwarding, don't fast forward. This is the good news part. What did you get to? What was the answer to all of this really complex stuff that you uncovered? So when I looked
3: at what the healthy achievers had in common, what it was, was that they had a sense that they mattered for who they were at their core. And mattering is this psychological concept, this construct that was developed in the 1980s by Morris Rosenberg, the same researcher and psychologist who you know developed the idea of self-esteem. And mm-hmm. what he found in the 80s was that young people who felt important and significant to their families enjoyed a protective layer of self-esteem. And it's been mattering has been studied now for decades. And it's really just been booming in the last several years. And the definition of matter that resonated the most with me and really was a wonderful framework for my findings was this idea of feeling valued by your family, by your friends, by your community, and then being depended on to add meaningful value back hmm. to your family, to your friends, to your community. So the kids I met Who were thriving had this high level of mattering and acted like a protective shield against stress and anxiety and failures and setbacks. You know, they still experienced these negative emotions, but they were able to bounce back from them because they enjoyed this high level of mattering. The kids who seemed to be struggling the most were those who either had a sense of mattering that was contingent on their performance, like they only. Mattered when, or kids who were so self focused that they were never dependent on to eat, to add meaningful value back to Mm. anyone other than themselves. And that self focus really set them up to live this very rocky up and down life where they felt good about themselves. They mattered when they performed. When they failed, they felt low. So it was really this high level of mattering that
1: was a protective shield. So it's like people need. Inputs and outputs. They need the opportunity to both absorb from outside and contribute to others in our homes, right? If we're going to take that concept and apply it into our homes, what does that look like? What does that sound like? Every single one of us loves our children and only wants the best for them. But how we go about doing that is often deeply flawed if you're living in my house. So, how do we go about it, Jenny, so that we can kind of shift the script here and change because it's never too late, right? We can always change that sense of mattering in our home. So what some of your guidance on how to do that? So mattering occurs, you know, in life's small moments.
3: So it's something that, well, these, you know, seem like little moments over time, they accumulate into actually kind of a massive shift. Hmm. And what you're thinking about as a parent, right? If you want to create this haven of mattering in your home, what does that look like? It is sending them clear messages. It is making the thinking visible that they matter for who they are at their core. And I'll give you one little example of a very wise mother that I met. Whenever her kids have a setback, she goes into her wallet and she takes out a $20 bill. And she says to her child, do you want this money? And the child says, of course. And she said, okay, hang on. Of course, she wrinkles it up, she throws it on the floor, she dunks it in a glass of water, and then she holds up this soggy, dirty, wrinkled $20 bill. And she says, do you still want it? And the child says, yes. And she says, like this $20 bill, your worth doesn't change if you have a setback, if you fail, if you don't make the team, your worth is your worth no matter what. It doesn't change. And so messages like that to drown out the constant messages our kids are getting in the culture at school that you, you only matter when or certain people only matter more. It's being able to hammer that home to our kids clearly. Another shift that I've made is noticing and creating rituals around seeing who they are at their core. So for my, you know, it's getting the PhD in them. So for all of our birthdays, we go around the table and we say one thing we love about the birthday boy or girl. And it's never about an external achievement. It's always about, they're so caring. You know, my daughter might've said to, you know, my son, you care about people, even strangers, or, you know, I appreciate how you put your homework down to help me with my math problem. Another way that I've started doing this is my kids' teachers send home report cards with little narrations, five or six sentences along with the grade and i've taken to highlighting and commenting on them. you know, i see this too. yes, you have this great sense of humor. yes, you're you're always the first one to help a classmate. and just pointing out as much as we can in the home why they are valued for things that they have full control over.
1: what i love about that is it forces us to do something else that i personally suck at, which is to be present in the small moments. that is where i fail day in and day out where I need to remember to put down my phone, where I need to remember to turn the music down. Like if the mattering happens in the small moments, Jenny, then our presence needs to happen in the small moments. And that is something that we have control over. We can't control how our kids react to our noticing, but if we can be present to notice and offer up that mattering and So that was, for me, a takeaway from the book where I need to shift something in how I approach things.
2: Or it matters enough to you to want to shift because you're framing it as a failure and it's not a (laughs) failure, (laughs) right? (laughs) But it's not. It's you. I mean, this word mattering is so interesting because it really has so many different subtle meaning shifts. And one of them is it matters. To you, how you make your kids matter. Mm. And that's really interesting. So I would argue, Vanessa, that it's not a failure, that it's actually a strength that you recognize what matters. And I also want to pluck out something, Jenny, that you said earlier in that answer, which was about drowning out things that happen in places outside the home. And I think this is a really important piece of the equation. Kids aren't going to matter to everyone in every space. And it doesn't mean they don't matter. But I think looking at the classroom in particular, it gets very complicated because there's no teacher in America who teaches without caring about kids. Kids matter to that teacher. But the way in which they matter, how they matter day to day, or what's going on in the teacher's life, and how that shifts how the kid feels about mattering really impacts a kid's experience in that classroom. And so the drowning out becomes really important, or maybe framed a slightly different way. The rethinking why you don't feel like you matter in a certain setting is really important. On a sports team, if your coach doesn't seem to be paying any attention to you, if you feel like you can never get fielded, if you feel like you can never get teaching or training or, or you're being ignored, what the kid is saying is, I feel like I don't matter. And so engaging in that conversation about why they feel that way, and then figuring out how the kid can engage the coach because there's no way the coach is doing it if they don't care about kids. That math doesn't add up. It's like the varsity blue scandal. Like I don't buy the storyline that they don't care about the kids or that the brand, it's only the brand that matters.
3: So I just wanted to point out the other thing, the other side of mattering. So feeling valued is only half of the equation. And that's a, a half of the equation, which is important but the full equation is offering kids social proof that they matter. And how do they get that social proof? They get it through adding meaningful value back to the family, through chores, through responsibilities. Like my 17 year old is my tech expert. He, you know, even when he's in the middle of a class and this happened while I was writing the book, He snuck out of the classroom, went into the bathroom and helped me uh, recover a chapter that I thought, I know, I hope his teachers aren't listening, but yes, he, he faked it and he went to the bathroom and, um, he had an SOS on his, uh, on his phone from me. But so the way that they know that they matter, right. They know because we give them the messages, but then they also see it. They need to see their impact. And so I have taken to really being thoughtful about, I don't even call them chores anymore. Just ways of helping the family. I think chores has a has a bad brand. It's about the family well-being and how can you help? Because family is the first introduction to society for a kid. And so to teach them how to be a valued, impactful member of society. So adding value shows us we are valued. It gives us proof we are valued. And then it may feel even more valued.
1: So, I want to close with advice you give. And this is, I think, actually something you gleaned from another parent you interviewed. And you talk about the lesson about that we should never worry alone. And I found it like I'm going to start crying because we all worry about our kids and we sit in that worry and we feel protective of our kids' privacy and we feel protective of our family's privacy. And yet, That worry is heavier than anything else in the world we will ever experience. And so talk about that lesson you learned. Talk about how adults can walk away from this podcast feeling like, oh, that's really helpful. I'm gonna go do this right now.
3: So the never worry alone is a phrase that Ned Hallowell, who's a psychiatrist, talked about in his wonderful book, The Childhood Roots of Adult Happiness. And it's a mantra that I have adopted in my own home. And it's because, as you pointed out, if parents are gonna take away one thing from this podcast today, to me, the biggest lesson in the book next to mattering, which is huge, is that the number one intervention for any child in distress is to ensure the primary caregiver, most often the mother or the father, that the primary caregiver's well-being and support system is intact because a child's resilience rests fundamentally on the resilience of the adults in their lives and the adults' resilience rests fundamentally on their relationships the depth of their relationships and what i found in in traveling was you know the parents all had friends what they didn't have was time to nurture these friendships so that they could be the source of support needed when you're going through really hard times that you don't need a ton of people in your life, but you need one or two people who can see you that you can be vulnerable with, who love you unconditionally, flaws at all, so that they can, you know, I, one of the researchers, Sonia Luther, who, who is featured prominently in this book, she's a famous resilience researcher. You know, I said to her, so are you talking about putting on your oxygen mask on first? And she said, no, she actually said it a little firmly than I just said it, but she said, <laughs> no, and she slammed the table. And she said, I'm not tasking parents with one more thing to do. I am saying, find people in your life that know you can see you starting to struggle and will put the mask on for you so that you can be the first responder that you want to be for your own children. So the takeaway here is not that we need Tons of time with our friends. The research finds we only need one hour of deliberate connection every week with people who know us and value us for who we are at our core to feel like we fully matter. And then we can be that source of support for our own kids. So, yes, never worry alone. If you can keep that in your head, You can implant that in your child. I think we can just really shift the conversation that we are having about mental health. That resilience is not about taking a bubble bath or downloading an app. Resilience is rooted in the depth of our relationships. We need to teach our kids that and we need to internalize
2: that ourselves. And as our kids get older, they will not worry with someone, with us. And that is not a failure of parenting. That is a success. When they can share their worries beyond the adults who are raising them and they can do it with peers and they can learn, that's so much of the individuation and the growth that needs to happen, especially during the teen years. And sometimes they'll get it wrong and they'll pick the wrong person to worry with. And that's a growth curve of its own.
1: So to all of you listening, two critical lessons from this really, really important book. One is figure out how to show your kids and the people in your family that they matter and help them figure out how to help other people feel like they matter. And the second thing is don't worry alone. So if you've been putting off that walk or that visit or that phone call with a trusted friend who has your back, finish the podcast, call the friend, go for the walk because you're actually doing something for your kid, not just for yourself. Jenny, you are so wonderful. Thank you for putting this beautiful book in the world and for teaching all of us. We are so, so, so grateful. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for this great conversation. we absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products like the Oom shorts or the Oom socks or the Oom bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the puberty podcast, and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book, or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com.